Okay, so we're reading today from 2 Corinthians, verse 1 through to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all of his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted to us in answer to the prayers of many. Thanks, Michael. Good morning, everyone. I add my welcome to that of Chris. If we haven't met, my name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Anglican. It's always a joy and a privilege to uh, bring the word of God to bear uh, on us together. Let me uh, lead us in prayer and uh, please keep your Bibles open at uh, the start of 2 Corinthians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word and you do that for our good. Father, may we set aside any hindrances or distractions uh, that we would both rejoice in and tremble at your word and be transformed by it to become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I don't care if it hurts. I want to have control. I want a perfect body. I want a perfect soul. I want you to notice when I'm not around. So very special. I wish I was special, but I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. I don't belong here. So go the words to the song, Creep, by the band Radiohead. According to Wikipedia, as of 2019 in April in the UK, it was the most streamed song that had been released in its year, 1992, with 10.1 million streams. And it remains, uh, much to the band's uh, dislike, their most successful single. Now, I am certainly no big fan of 90s grunge music. I probably couldn't name another Radiohead song, but even I have to admit that I can see why that song shot straight to the top and earned that band millions of dollars. 
Basically, so many people can easily relate to the sentiment that gets expressed. I don't fit in. I don't belong here. It's something that so many people can so easily feel in so many situations and circumstances. God made us relational beings, but we also inhabit a fallen world marked by death and decay. So in all sorts of circles, it becomes easy for us on account of a real or even just a perceived insecurity to feel like, I don't actually truly belong. I don't really fit in here. Now, to guard against the uncomfortableness of that feeling, sometimes people retreat into themselves and become what we call very private people. Sometimes we invest our insecurity with great nobility and virtue. I'm like, not like those normal people in the in crowd. I'm one of those broken, therefore authentic people who sees things as they really are. Sometimes people get imposter syndrome. The idea that I'm not competent like everyone else is so I have to keep up appearances and, and hope that nobody ever finds me out. But such coping mechanisms only ever prove the point. A sense of belonging can often be as elusive as it is idolised. Now, how do such ways of thinking and feeling, which are common enough to make creep a number one single, how do such ways of thinking and feeling square with our experience of being members of God's temple? members, that is, of his church, the one body of Christ. We probably know that it ought to be the case that the members of God's church feel like they belong and fit in, but we also know that can sometimes seem more the exception than the rule. It's that thought that I want us to have in mind as we come to this first half of chapter one of Paul's second letter, to the church in Corinth. And I'm a little bit excited when we start a new sermon series. Obviously, we're now starting a new sermon series on uh, Paul's letter, second letter to Corinthians. Paul opens with a greeting that, on first glance, looks pretty mundane and straightforward, but that, on reflection, is actually a fairly radical start to this letter. Verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, he's introducing himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, and then the recipients to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that last sentence, the grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that is a pretty standard part of... Uh, pretty standard kind of greeting from, from the Apostle Paul. Uh, God's church has been established on account of God's kindness, his grace to us uh, by saving us. And our relationships with one another are therefore characterised by peace. Uh, the blood of Jesus puts us all on the same page. So regardless of our many differences, we all have a common interest and a common identity. Hence, we have peace with God and peace with one another. Uh, such grace and peace are ours, not because of anything good that we've done, but it's because God has given us the immense gift of coming to know him as Father through knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Hence, it's God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But the radical thing about this greeting is that Paul very unashamedly and straight up refers to this group of people as the church of God. It's not just any collective, it's God's gathered people. And guys, I've got to tell you, that's almost scandalous. 
If you look back or remember back to Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, you would find out that there were factions and divisions. I follow Paul. (laughs) I follow Apollos. (laughs) I follow Christ. You would find out there are lawsuits among believers. I'm taking you to court in order to sue you and stick you in jail because of the dispute we're having. There was rampant sexual immorality. A man is having relations with his father's wife. And not only that, but the church is proud about such activity, which, of course, is disgusting immorality. And just as bad, there was also a tendency toward asceticism. Well, I'm not going to be married or I'm not going to engage in any sexual activity with my spouse. That's earthly bodily pleasures and I'm too holy for that. I'm being super spiritual by renouncing my earthly pleasures. And when it came to spiritual things, I'm more holy than you when I pray because I pray in my native language or a special language so it's just only God and me that can understand how holy am I. And even worse than that, There were some people denying the resurrection to the judgment, or even worse, possibly denying the resurrection full stop, which is literal heresy. It actually places you outside the kingdom of heaven. Paul said that he could not address these people as truly spiritual, but as worldly. They had so many issues that he painstakingly had to sort through, and so much so that he's now having to write them a second letter. What a mess of a church the church in Corinth was. And yet, according to the inspired word of this apostle, this is the church of God. And they're just as on par with all God's other holy people, his other saints in the region. Now, this is already a challenge and rebuke to me, as I probably expect it is to to many of you. That difficult person, that annoying person, that broken person, that person with a silly issue, ought I yet not regard them as the church of God, given the way Paul regards the Corinthian church? Do I look at the fellowship God has placed me in and before all else say, this is God's church? Many years ago, I had a friend who was uh, looking to to join a a good Bible teaching church. So I invited him along to mine, which at the time was St. Michael's Anglican Cathedral, uh, Wollongong. Uh, The rector back then uh, was a great guy named Sandy Grant. He's now actually the the dean of the cathedral in in the city. And I introduced my friend to Sandy. And as Sandy told him what we believe and how the church runs, my friend was overjoyed because this was exactly the thing that he was looking for. So Sandy also made a point of saying to this new person, listen, it's important I tell you that there is a good chance that sooner or later I will let you down. And to me, that was a terrific lesson from Sandy. You see, it wasn't his church, never was, never will be. It's God's church, and like any other imperfect member of God's church, well, of course the leader might let you down just like anyone will let anyone else down. I assume it won't be intentional, I hope not. But the head of the church is perfect and he will never let us down, which of course is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his church, it's God's church. Now how can such a messed up and dysfunctional group of people be considered God's church? 
Well, it's because God is the father of compassion and therefore he uses his people to give comfort. Or, in my opinion, a slightly better translation, he uses people to give consolation to one another. Look with me from verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. To put it another way, the God to whom the church belongs is the God whose son would say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. He is the father of all compassion. And just as following Jesus means we've chosen to take up our cross and therefore suffer, so too, in Jesus, our God has provided the means by which we can mutually comfort or console one another. Uh, the word here translated comfort is elsewhere translated encourage, uh, which is a word that I think Christians tend to overuse. We just use it to mean good sometimes as well as its actual meaning. Or, like I said, console. Given that the gospel is for sinners who then join in the sufferings of Christ, and given that Christ himself is called the consolation of Israel in Luke's gospel, I think it makes sense that we think of one of the functions of the church as consoling one another in hardships. And that really is a function of the church. God, in his perfect wisdom and goodness, has decided that his comfort, his consoling of his troubled people, comes via the means of other troubled people. To put it another way, God uses mess to deal with mess. That shouldn't surprise us. He used the messy murder of his perfect son to deal with the messiness of sin in his chosen people. There's a deliberate emphasis on the mutual comforting of God's people. Hence verse 6, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. It's a bit of a um, brainful and tongue twister, but I'll set it straight. When, when I see someone persevering through hardship for the sake of the gospel, I am greatly comforted, or, or even you could say encouraged. My great comfort then inspires me to console you amidst your struggle, such that by the time there's wind in your sails from being consoled, then you're ready to comfort me as I now suffer the hardships of living for Jesus and round and round it goes, or always sort of on and on. And notice that this mutual consoling is to produce in us the ability for patient endurance. There's a purpose even for this system that God has established. It's to to enable patient endurance. Patient endurance under hardship is something God uses to mould us more and more into the image of his beloved son, who was himself the patiently enduring man of sorrows. 
Patient endurance is something our compassionate God considers precious, but which our world and culture now often, from what I can gather, seems to despise and reject. Uh, You see it in the euthanasia debates. I'm certainly an advocate for the relieving of pain and suffering, and from what little I know about the issue of palliative care, my guess is there's significant room for improvement. But the idea that patient endurance as a legitimate approach to suffering is looked down upon by our hedonistic culture is something that actually grates against the Christian worldview. Remember, it was Job's wife who said to him, curse God and die. And thankfully, Job corrected her. No, that's not the way. It was when he saw how Jesus died that the Roman centurion who was looking on then said, surely this was the Son of God. How are you going or how do you think you'll go when it comes to patient endurance? How am I going with patient endurance? endurance. In our culture, we can easily forget that that's something that's precious to God, that that's something virtuous. You know, the old word for it was long-suffering. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, actually, long-suffering. Now, like any good minister of Christ, Paul practices what he preaches. So, the next thing he does is to give a working example of his suffering, which he then uses to comfort the Corinthians and suggest a way by which, in turn, they can comfort him. So here's the example from verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd receive the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Notice that the patient endurance was not happening for Paul. It was not on the cards for Paul and Timothy and whoever else is is with him when they face the pressures of mission and, and, and the persecution that accompanies it. He says they were far beyond their ability for enduring. And that's not because they were under the sentence of death. Everyone in this fallen world is under the sentence of death. Man is destined to die once and then face judgment. No, no, it's because they felt the sentence of death. Like in Philippians where Paul didn't know if he'd live or die. The reality of death was brought closer because of his circumstance. And of course history tells us that Paul was eventually martyred. He was beheaded in Rome. But what gave him the ability for patient endurance? Well first and foremost the fact that even when he felt the sentence of death he knew the God who raises the dead to new and everlasting life, which surely is a tremendous comfort. He really is the father of compassion and the God of all comfort because even when the worst happens, God still ensures that the worst doesn't happen. And it's when the worst is close to happening that Paul was forced to rely on this God of all comfort who promises us things like, 
For example, Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. John 6, 39, Jesus says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. That's the God of compassion and comfort. Even when the worst happens, he will ensure that the worst doesn't happen for those who are in Christ. But how is such comfort and consolation experienced by Paul and his co-workers? Well, look back again at verse 10. On him, that's on God, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us to deliver us as you help us by your prayers then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many in the same breath that paul talks about the consoling work of god with his resurrection power he talks about the prayers of those with whom he's in christian fellowship they, in their dysfunctional mess, are the ones who channel the comfort of God to help him in his dysfunctional mess. If you struggle with feeling like you don't fit in, on the basis of this word of God, I think one of the Bible's great antidotes is that you start praying for other people in your fellowship to endure hardships and to persevere in following Jesus, and also asking that they do the same for you as you share your hardships. Given that most people at some time or another, to some degree, feel they don't belong or fit in, there'll always be a lot of giving and receiving of prayer amongst the church of God. In fact, I'm actually confident to say that God's church is made up entirely of broken people who endure suffering and who enjoy consolation together. I think that's the view of the church that Paul has and that becomes evident, especially in this second letter to the church in Corinth. It won't be far into this letter when Paul speaks of all Christians as being jars of clay, fragile, crackable. Nor will it be long before he speaks of the way our weakness shows forth Christ's strength. Then later still, he'll speak about a thorn in the flesh given to him to teach him that God's grace is sufficient. He'll talk about his daily anxiety for the churches amidst the trials and persecutions. He'll chastise these Corinthians for chasing worldly power and status. And he'll instruct them to forgive people in order that they might avoid excessive Sorrow, again, that they'd receive the comfort of God channeled through the dysfunctional church. But for the time being, surely that old adage that a burden shared is a burden halved is an obvious and immediate implication. Paul didn't want the messy Corinthian church to be uninformed of how he and Timothy had suffered just as he was eager to know how things were going for them. We'll find that out later on the letter. He's really desperate to know how they're going. If that's what the missionary founder of the church does, well, how much more ought it be common practice for the church to let one another know of personal trials? Uh, it can be hard, especially 
though not exclusively by any means, for those who are married, who have various troubles within their relating as husband and wife, to bring those things to a trusted Christian friend. But we care deeply about marriage. It's a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church, so it ought to be something you can speak to your people within your fellowship about. You find another married person, they'll probably tell you their dysfunctional <laughs> problems as well. That's just one example, though. It's one that comes to mind. Now, of course, it may be the case that for someone here or someone listening online, that you don't just need to share a burden with a fellow in your church, but that you need your original burden of sin to be taken away completely. You might just not need to share one. You might actually need your burden taken. Jesus and Jesus alone can do that and he invites you. As a matter of fact, Acts chapter 17, he commands you to come to him in repentance and faith and enjoy the immense comfort of knowing that when you do, he takes away the penalty for your sin, makes you a child of God such that you can then endure suffering and enjoy consolation in God's church. Lastly, when Paul wrote that famous command in Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say would rejoice, which a lot of people will have a song in their head as soon as I say that, it wasn't an individual he was speaking to, but of course the whole church, the you in a few sentences beforehand, he's addressing them, plural, yous rejoice in the Lord, to use Bogan English. This implies that in Christ, I have something of an obligation to want to see you, my church, rejoicing in the Lord. And likewise, you, other Christian, have something of an obligation to want to see that I, your fellow believer, am rejoicing in the Lord. Now, don't think for a second that rejoicing in the Lord means the same thing as being happy. I can't make you happy any more than you can make me happy. But I can let you know of my struggles, just as you can let me know of yours. My weak prayers for you can truly be the means by which our compassionate Father provides consolation, just as your weak prayers for me can truly be the means by which I enjoy our Father's consoling. It's on account of our ongoing and active fellowship together that we can rejoice, we can count it all joy even when we suffer various trials and hardships. And I think the more you sort of get into that pattern, the more you realise that we all fit in because basically none of us does. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are indeed the God of all compassion, the God of all comfort that through your collected, gathered and saved people, through your family that is the body of Christ, you disseminate your comfort and compassion, that you use broken people to help broken people, just as you used your perfect and holy Son uh, to bear our sin, uh, that we might have the penalty cancelled and come to know you as our loving Father. Lord God, I pray that uh, you would embolden us where necessary, to be a little bit more transparent in sharing our burdens with one another, as Paul was here, uh, with the hope and uh, the right expectation that that will result in comfort and consolation and that we, in turn, will offer such comfort and consolation 
uh, to one another. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.